You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are back discussing our final, no, second final Herds novel of the year. And it is Hercule Poirot in Silent Night by not Agatha Christie. What? Sophie Hannah. Sophie Hannah, you're not Agatha Christie. Or is she? Oh, from a, from a reincarnated body, perhaps. Yes. I, I believe that. <laughs> Sophie Hannah is in the middle of, I think now, a five-book series expanding on the canon of Hercule Poirot, and this is the latest one, Silent Night. We're discussing chapters 1 to 12 this week on the show. Christmas-themed, which is exciting. Yes. It, it's not quite Christmas at time of, of speaking, but I love the theme of this book. I love how jolly all of these characters are, except for the ones that aren't, which is most of them. Yeah. Most of them are downright depressing. I mean, it's, it's great. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that it's actually the jolliness of our victim that supposedly gets Hercule Poirot out of his London apartment and out to Norfolk. Yeah, it, it reminds me a bit of the Father Brown short short mystery wherein a, a, another jolly man has been killed. I don't know if there's a relation here, some inspiration, <laughs> but the, the solution to that mystery obviously relied on the fact that the character seemed so jolly. So I'm sure, I'm, I'm excited to see, Flex, as you, as you solve this book, how you ascribe the characteristics of St. Nicholas himself oh my to goodness. our murder victim. Yeah, I mean, essentially what's happened is that Stanley Niven, a man who was ever so jolly, has died in his hospital bed and Poirot has been summoned out by his detective friend's mother yes, to come and investigate Watson's the case mother. so that her host, when he goes into hospital, get, get killed, killed yes. trying to solve the murder. Yeah, there's lots of fun kind of character dynamics going on here because when Catchpool, that's the other detective's name, yes. his mother shows up, his mother pretends to be somebody else to get in the door because she knows that her son doesn't want to see her around Christmas. He wants to spend Christmas with Poirot because that's just the kind of cute things they do together. <laughs> but she tricks her way in the front door and says, well, you must come to Old Frelly, which is this basically mansion castle that's like sinking into the swamp actively, like sinking into the sea, I should say. It's interesting because Cynthia, Edward's mother, mm. describes it as this grand mansion, which will be a great tragic loss when it finally falls into the but sea. it's just dusty and awful, isn't yeah. it? Like, the way that it sounded to me is like a 3D kit bash. Like all of the pieces of the mansion don't necessarily fit together, but the 3D modeler who made it just like <laughs> stuck junk in there to fill yeah. it out. Well, I mean, that, that's the impression we get of quite a few of the characters as we meet them, the, yeah. the first person we meet, they have like all these various bits and pieces of clothing that they're traveling from one place to another. Everything in the house doesn't make sense. The the, the cook ladles lumps of meat onto the table. Like, it's miserable. And what I really enjoy about this is obviously it's Christmas themed and we're playing on that idea. You know, obviously we, we're putting the mindset of Edward Catchpole who doesn't want to see his mother for Christmas. We're playing on that idea of, you know, somebody says you should come to the family gathering for Christmas. It won't be as bad as you remember. But for these characters, it's much worse. You know, it's yeah. it's it's an awful, awful time for them. And then there's also a murder they have to solve. So it just it just keeps going. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting the way that there's so much stuff in this novel that happens that is either going to be characterization or clues. Like, obviously, it could be both, but I think that the way that Sophie Hannah has, like, played with it really allows the book to have a sense of narrative momentum without what are going to be clues bogging it down with just data, essentially. Like, 
you know, we have Maddie walk up the stairs dressed in all of these clothes, and she's like, well, this is just a more efficient way to get these clothes to the garbage tip. And it's like, you got hands, Maddie. You couldn't have got, like, a box or something? Like, this is the method that you've chosen. It's an incredibly strange decision. Yeah, I think it's really cool, actually, that we've we've spent, I think, all the time so far, aside from the bath in the sea that Catchpole takes, which is another one of those things where his mother said, oh, you should come up and have a have a swim in the sea. It's good for you. But then as soon as he gets there, she's like, oh, don't actually do that. That's it's a, freezing. It's a, it's a bad idea. I don't know. I, it's the middle of like, winter. Why would you do? To, yeah, it's it's great. He's like, why did you tell me to do that? She's like, oh, I, don't, I never told you to do that. She's awful. But most of the time that we've had so far has been in the mansion where obviously the murder takes place. In, in the hospital. So, of course, the question is, why are we spending so much time in this entirely unrelated location with these characters who couldn't possibly have committed the murder, of course, because most of them were here or, or whatever. We spend so much time getting to know all the different rooms in the house and the various creaks and groans of the place. And I love the way that Sophie goes about finding organic ways for us to learn more about the characters. The dinner scene is obviously a favorite where the the meal is awful and Edward doesn't get along with everybody and the tensions within the house as well begin to rise because there are these two brothers who married two sisters, which sounds like a great idea because, you know, how else do you meet people? You meet people that marry your your brother exactly. or whatever. Exactly, and then you enslave their parents yes, to come and work to in your kitchen. to be the servants. Yeah, so it's it's so clear that even though that this could be a beautiful, happy family, the circumstances of who's married who has led to this boiling pot of emotion that's just about to tip over, right? And it's also really interesting because we have at once portrayed the demeanor of our impending victim, Arnold Laurier. It said he didn't really like spending money, you know? He liked putting money towards things that were important and improving his community, so his mansion's falling apart. But he got rid of his servants, he's underpaying the people he's replaced them with, like... Stuff's in just bad condition to the point of being useless. He's got such an interesting mindset. I mean, he's a whole thing unto himself, but the stated goal is that he wants to save money for his children so that he will live in poverty until he dies and then his kids will have a great life. But they're all living with him. They're all living with him until he dies. So their lives are going to be miserable until that happens which means maybe they'll be thankful when he's murdered. I wonder if that's going to happen. I wonder if that's going to be involved in the plot at some point. (laughs) He's really interesting. He also wants to get involved in the murder case. He comes to Poirot and says, all right, I have some really like cool evidence I'd like to share with you, but I'll only share it with you if you let me solve the murder myself. Yeah. Which is I mean, just I, stupid. I love that line. I love that line <laughs> where Pyro just hears that and goes like, well, you see, my men, as you call them, yeah. wouldn't try and like coax me. me. Yeah. It's, yep. it, it's so good. It's such a great scene. And I also- That was fantastic, honestly. Yeah. I love him. It's also so interesting that Sophie Hannah then gets Catchpool to leave so we don't see the information completely that Arnold gives him. Then later Poirot says he didn't get the information and then we get a letter from Albert with the information but Albert hasn't been seen in three chapters. It's such a great sequence of events to like both thrum up the character of Arnold and create this question of, is this information actually what Arnold was going to say? He's kind of this is enigma. And I don't know about you, but at this point in the novel, I was definitely thinking, you know, is Arnold suspicious? Is he, like, working with Poirot? Like, is this some kind of scheme that he and Poirot have cooked up together and Catchpole is just not informed? Like, there's all sorts of room for thinking about how is Arnold approaching 
trying to solve this murder that he really has no business solving, you know? Yeah, I think the other thing that's really fascinating about this is the way that we have this framing device come in early in the story where two of the non-familial characters in the house, Felix Rawcliffe and Robert Osgood, spend the entire car ride from the train that they collect Edward and Poirot and Cynthia at talking about Romeo and... And Rosalind. And Rosalind. Yes, yes. Fascinating, isn't it? Because we're establishing their pedigree, you know, knowing Romeo and Juliet, obviously, but they're not talking about the characters that you would expect them to be talking about. And it's very clear that this story is in some way analogous to the situation in the house. I did find it slightly frustrating that the excerpts of their dialogue we get don't really seem to actually say that much. The comments that Poirot makes about, oh, they're clearly talking about the real people and not the characters, it was an inference you could clearly make, but there was nothing that they said that really... I think it's difficult for you, and we'll, we'll get into this in yeah. the mystery section, obviously, but to pinpoint exactly which characters they're talking about, whether they're talking about themselves or the brother-sister situation or somebody else entirely, like, we don't really know. There is actually, it's it's a good thing you brought up these sort of ethereal clues. There is a clue in the book, I'm going to let you know, Flex, Uh-oh. that Catchpool calls out as unfair in the text of the book and I am going to be asking you to figure out what that clue might oh, be no. as we Is go. That this week or next week? Uh, next week. We'll no, say okay. next week. I'll give you some more time, but I just want to pre-warn you yep. because I think that'll be a fun one. The thing that's going to be really interesting here is that we have the pretense given that characters go by multiple names. Like That's why we're talking about Rosalind and Romeo. That's why we have Mr. Hurt His Head yes. introduced. What a great character. Um, we don't know whether that's someone we've met yet or not. Yeah. Like It's someone who was at the hospital at some point that Arnold mentions in his letter, but this is Arnold's letter that we don't know if it was actually written by Arnold because we haven't seen Arnold since he was probably carted off to be killed somewhere. Yeah. I mean, even then, he gives us two, because Arnold's trying to be very helpful, uh, maybe be very helpful and he, he's given us two leads through this letter one of which is Mr. Hurt his head and the other is some poor woman at the post office who yeah. didn't want to receive a letter it's ridiculous yeah. like the context of those letters is bizarre definitely feels like a couple of red herrings you know the other thing that's really interesting through this story is that there's a lot of clues that coming back to that idea of are they character moments or are they clues the answer is probably yes. Probably both. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that's happening to Poirot and Catchpool that falls yes. into that as well. This is true. Like, they're getting really sleepy all the time. Are they being, like, fed knockout drugs in the food by Enid? They were served from the same batch as everyone else. Also, the nightmare that... Well, the chapter is called Poirot's Nightmare, so yes. we're led to believe that it's a real nightmare. But he says that he heard Catchpool like knocking on his door and shouting for him. And then yeah. Catchpool's like, I didn't do that. What are you talking about? I've been in bed the whole time. Yeah, and then Catchpool says he heard Poirot snoring, but Poirot says that was Arnold downstairs. And that was why he decided to go to bed, because he was happy that Arnold was still alive. It's great. It's great. Like, th- There's a lot of room on the mystery end for interpreting and reinterpreting these clues as you go yeah. through. It's also kind of fun that we're, we're sort of making a ghost story out of our Christmas story. We are. Right? Like, ghosts haven't appeared and no one has suggested ghosts, but everything is, as you say, very ethereal. It's almost like Stanley Niven is like the, the specter that hangs over the house, dooming yeah. it to fall into the sea, which is always a fun sort of metaphor for the degradation of familiar relationships over time. <laughs> It's good, yeah. I'm trying to think. There was another scene that really fascinated me. Like, well, I guess it was it was in the kitchen scene. 
Mm. Sorry, not the kitchen scene. In the dinner. in the in the dinner scene, where like so much dialogue is happening back and forth between all of these characters, and I love the way that it was laden with information that you could just sail past if you were just kind of cruising through the dialogue. Like the most obvious one to me, I think, was when Janet refers to her sister as Madeline. When the first yes. time we met Maddie, she was like, "If you call me Madeline, it denotes you as my enemy." Like that's obviously meant to be a cue for us as the audience. And I think that there's a bunch of other stuff going on in that dialogue scene where I'm going to come back, read that dinner, and go, "Oh, and that was this, and that was this, and that was this." And it just has that aura of mystery possibility to me, but I don't know quite in which way to throw it just yet. And it's so much fun. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff like that where you kind of realize that the way that a character's been referring to another character or or the absence of comment on a particular issue by a character that should care about it, that sort of thing, will come back and be very significant. Because I do think that the majority of the characters, certainly the core like family, is extremely well fleshed out in that regard. You know, they all have their particular family dynamics. And the middle part of the book is really getting to the nuts and bolts of like who cares about who, in what ways. So I'm excited to get to that. The other thing that I, I do want to find out, I'm careful to research things because I'm not the one Uh-oh. who's read all the way to the end of the book, but this is set in 1931, and I can't off the top of my head remember when in Poirot canon that falls because I did feel like Poirot was a little bubblier than I've read him in the other books that I've read of his. I'm not that familiar with the extended Poirot canon, I'll be honest, but I, I feel like this book just in general is, is very lighthearted. Yeah. Like we're playing into that idea of like, if our murder victim was the jolliest man alive, then we need to keep pace with them. Yeah. You know, like Poirot does a lot of silly stuff in this book. He makes some some quips and he he makes fun of, of, of Catchpool and, you know, and of course, we're dealing with, with Cynthia, who is just a, a bundle of, well, of silly course, tropes, silly mother that, tropes. We right? have that fantastic contrast between Cynthia and Dr. Osgood, where Cynthia interrupts Poirot, correcting her, calling yes. him French, and then Dr. Osgood preempts him and calls him Belgium, observing that other people would think he was French. Like, there's very explicitly a whole bunch of, like, counter-dynamics that are set up through the ways people interact with him. Yeah. Cynthia is a very privileged woman, let's put it that way. Like, <laughs> in, in in the initial scene, she completely overrides Poirot's authority. She says, you know, we're in such a hurry, I couldn't possibly tell you all about this crime. We barely have enough time for tea and cakes. The the Poirot household doesn't, doesn't have. Their manservant, George's, has to go out and, like, procure tea and cakes for them. She's acting as though this is, like, th- this is the more important thing. Not talking about the murder, Getting these stupid cakes. <laughs> I know. And then we get back to Frelly when like, we finally arrive there. And everyone is like, oh, yeah, Cynthia like, had only been here for three days when Cynthia had been making it sound like she'd been taking care of the she's house this forever. entire time. Like, she's as old as the house oh and she loves the house, but she's barely been there at all. Yeah, she's completely miserable. I hope she gets her comeuppance by the end of the book, <laughs> but it's not going to happen, is it? Look, you don't know. She could fall off a balcony or something and hurt herself really badly. Look, I don't want it that to happen to her, but like, I, I mean, if it happened, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you know, it, it could happen. Anyhow, <laughs> we should wrap this part of the discussion here and we'll be back in just a bit to talk about The Mystery of Silent Night by Sophie Hanna. We're discussing chapters 1 to 12 on your Murder Mystery World Tour. Stay tuned. You're on 2SER 107.3. Flex here. You're listening to Death of the Reader. It's approaching the end of the year here on the show, and presumably that means out there in the real world too. 
this means for us review season where we rank and reflect on the stories we've read through the course of the year gone by this year we would love to feature you on review season so tell us about what you've enjoyed head over to 2ser.com slash death of the reader with a hyphens in between each of the last four words there that's 2ser.com slash death dash of dash the dash reader and follow the contact details there Tell us about your favorite trends in the crime fiction you've read this year and what your favorite stories are. It'd be fantastic to have some more voices on the show sharing the love of crime fiction as we round out a fantastic year. Hope to hear from you soon. Again, head over to the website 2ser.com and find the contact details there. We are going to jump back into Sophie Hanna's Hercule Poirot's Silent Night. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. And it's Christmas time. Woo! Jingle, jangle, jingle. Exactly. We're talking <laughs> Sophie Hannah's Silent Night, the fifth book in her Poirot continuation series, where we have traveled to Frelingslow House in Norfolk at mm. Munsby on Sea to solve the death of one Stanley Niven and to be around for the death, presumably, of one Arnold Laurier. To stick around for Christmas. If, yes. If Edward's mother has her way. Oh, goodness. <laughs> it's a whole other thing. This is this is going to be a great time. I'm excited. You're probably wondering, why didn't you do the Christmas book as the last book of the year? You'll find out. You'll find Poetic out soon. Poetic justice. Poetic justice is Poetic the answer. Poetic justice. If you want to hop on our socials and DM us, try guess why we haven't done this as the last book of the year and you get it right... Tell you what, I'll send you a copy of the last Ooh. book of the year. I thought you can offer points or something, but a book is much more valuable than a point. <laughs> I would know. Um, a little Merry Christmas gift from me to you. Yeah, we've read up till chapter 12 of Sophie Hannah's Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot's Silent Night. Too many names. Too many names, but with Edward Catchpool. But I guess you you have to solve this thing. We've had a murder in a hospital in, I don't know if it's like a locked room scenario necessarily, but yeah. there are some locked rooms or some closed rooms. We have a couple of leads. There's an angry woman from post office and Mr. Hurt His Head, who may have seen something. Like, I don't know. I guess we, we haven't even seen the, the crime scene yet. That'll fall to Inspector Mackle, the best character in the book, to show us yeah. to show us that. What are your impressions, I guess? Who do who you find suspicious? I just want to say that I am like 90% confident that the actual killer who did the murders yes. is going to be Vivienne. Why? And it was simply because when we get to the letter, which was totally, definitely, absolutely, 100% written by Arnold, mm. just after we'd been told that, you know, father would have wanted that window room so that he could spy on other patients. He would. And lead two in the letter says, courtyard or no courtyard, I told Vivian, I do not mind in the slightest. Mm. Now, I'm pretty confident that I told Vivian there is Vivian making herself the evidence point for the lie she has told to cover her crime. Okay. That's what I think has happened. Interesting, interesting. So you're saying that this discussion about the courtyard is the linchpin of the whole the whole murder mystery, that's what I'm hearing. No, but I think it's my best lead when, quite okay. honestly, for the rest of the mystery, I'm a little floundering. Okay. Like, it's said that the entire family of the Lauriers were in Albert's 2B room mm. when the yes, murder took place. Were. So in theory, Vivian has an alibi. Mm -hmm. 
I presume there is some way that we can break that alibi, but I don't know it yet. Mm. Yeah, the current story that the police are chasing is that it's it was probably done by one of the Stanley Niven's family members. Yes. Who we haven't met yet. And weren't even in the county. But I hear I, I hear that they have ironclad alibis. It's just, it's just like you, just like you say about Vivian, it's just a matter of breaking those alibis. So <laughs> by the same token. Yeah, I guess why do you think that Stanley Niven has even been killed then? He seems like a perfectly lovely chap hanging out in a hospital next to the room that Arnold was going to look at. Like, yeah. I don't know. I remember when I was reading this section, I thought maybe there's something up with the room. Mm. Maybe, you know, we're trying to kill kill Stanley to get his room or something. Maybe there's like something special in there. But what, what do you think? Why is Stanley Niven the victim of such graphic violence? I feel like the reason is going to be that it is something from Vivienne's past. Mm. We have this mention that... She was alone and had nothing at 29. Sure. And that Arnold became her whole world. Mm. And I feel like the implication that I get from the Romeo and Rosalind nod and from the way that she is like distraught through a lot of the novel, you know, she says she's given up getting Arnold to not try to solve this crime. She's like, distraught when she finds out that Stanley Niven had died. I think it's entirely possible what's happened is she was trying to scare someone from her previous life away from her, accidentally killed him, and is now in the situation of having her husband, who she loves from her current life that she actually likes, essentially hunting her to his dying day. Like, the end of her story with Arnold is going to be that he finds out his beloved wife was a murderer and his last breath is to curse her. So we know the murder weapon was, supposedly the murder weapon was a like a large vase. That's a bit of a strange weapon to kill someone with, to bludgeon them to death. Do you think that this was a premeditated crime or do you think it's a spur of the moment sort of thing? I want to say spur of the moment. I want, I want to say that I don't think she meant to kill him. I reckon mm. she maybe went to confront him to say, like, go away, and things took a wrong turn. Like, obviously, he was in hospital. He can't have been that physically capable to have a confrontation at that point, but that doesn't necessarily lock in that Vivian would have been in control of that situation. Sure, sure. So you're saying you think that Stanley Niven is is someone from from Vivian's past? Is that, like, what we're going with? Okay, cool. I like that. I feel like... Probably some, some kind of Santa Claus college. That's the <laughs> jolly through line. Yeah, I, I feel like Robert and Felix probably know something about that, and that's why they're talking about Romeo and Rosalind. Talk to me about that, because obviously, like the the thing they're talking about is is whether or not the love for Rosalind is more valuable than the love for Juliet, being the the first love that has been abandoned in favor of like a love at first sight situation, yeah. right? Like which which love is more valuable? Do you think that maybe there's like a love triangle going on? Is I that what you're thinking? I don't think so. I, no? think, I think Vivienne is happy with her old life. And like, honestly, it may be that Stanley is like the Romeo character that he'd like run off with someone else. Because the thing is, is I feel like if Dr. Osgood and Rawcliffe knew what had happened, they would have just turned her over to the police. So I feel like what's probably happened is that they know about Niven and him running away from this Rosalind character, but maybe they don't know that that's Vivienne. Maybe they they know Niven 
through other things. Maybe that's why Vivienne has like tried to have them around her house so that she's like got a bit of oversight on the things that they're hearing to try and like protect this false reality she's mm, trying to create. Maybe. I guess I guess my question is you you're throwing a lot of a lot of accusations at at the help at the people kind of outside of the the family, I guess, the doctor and, and Felix. I don't even remember what Felix does off of my head. <laughs> he has a voice where you can hear the teeth in it or something, I think. Uh, that sounds, I don't know. Key yeah. bit of characterization. I, I don't even remember what his job is because like everyone else is like a gardener or a direct relative. I guess what about the kids, the two brothers and sisters? Are, are they related to this at all? Are they involved in the crime? Or what's their deal? Like, why do they exist in the story at all? See, this is the part that I'm really stuck with. Okay. Because I think it's very clear that just from the fact Janet calls Maddie Madeline yeah, at all. There's, there's some spite there. I think you know? I think Janet is the antagonist in that situation. Ooh. But I don't know why. Interesting, interesting. Okay, I mean, that's fair enough. Look, we haven't seen that much of the, of the, the four children. Obviously, there's some bad blood between these families and and the couples. Yeah. But I don't know that you have enough information to necessarily pinpoint what's going on with them yeah. yet. But I'm sure, I'm sure we'll see. I think it's going to end up being mm. that Douglas and Maddie are like the innocent couple and mm. Jonathan and Janet are the evil couple. Sure, sure. And whether that's because they're actually in the Romeo, Juliet, Rosalind situation where like Jonathan was going to marry Maddie and then went for her sister instead and then like to make up for it they arranged the marriage of the other two or something like something that crazy like that yeah that would make sense but i also don't really have much grounds to base that off i think that's fair especially think... when i'm already using the rosalind clue elsewhere well, but you could always yeah. use the rosalind clue in both locations and make the parallel be the important part but i don't have anything to rest that on either I'll tell you, while we're here, so there is actually a list. That's why this chapter is called like a swim in the sea, a bath and a, and a list, a list of clues, you might say, or things that Catchpole is pondering about. Number eight is, is happy men, a recurring theme. We're talking about how Arnold was happy and Stanley was happy. Does Vivian think Arnold might be the next victim of a killer targeting happy men? Why do you think that someone being happy is like significant in the story? This is the other thing I'm really stuck on. Like, yeah. obviously, thematically speaking, with the Christmas thing and the Santa Claus and the families being forced back together, mm -hmm. I can see why it's aesthetically there, but I can't see morally why it's there quite yet. Obviously, we do have this tone, and this is something that I have neglected to mention other than alluding to it in the first part of the discussion today, is that Poirot and Arnold and Edward all seem to have really messed up sleep as soon as they are around Frelingslow House. And I'm relatively confident that that is because of either some atmospheric or food-induced effect that is actually causing them to have bad sleep that is like perhaps something that Vivienne is doing, perhaps in collaboration with Rawcliffe, and that's why they were having that argument on the stairs to buy time to keep the illusion together. Let me throw something at you. You've been throwing a lot at this this Romeo and Rosalind business, yeah. trying to figure out who it could possibly apply to. Clue number two, the Dr. Lodger, Robert Osgood, is engaged to be married to somebody. Do you not think that that's the most likely proponent of this Romeo and Juliet situation? Maybe he has an old flame that he's left to be with his new love that he's engaged to? Or do you think that that's a red herring? I feel like Osgood wouldn't be talking about it in code if mm. it was about him. 
I feel like Rawcliffe would just be speaking in second person to him if, if it was about him. Because if they're talking about Osgood's relationship, why would you say in that situation, is Romeo someone else? Is Rosalind his partner? Like, I guess it is something you can explain. Sure. But I don't think that in the company of Hercule Poirot and Edward Catchpool, that they would necessarily like need to keep that charade going. That's fair. I'm going to posit the theory that maybe they weren't speaking in code, but perhaps were speaking in metaphor in an argument with each other. I'm sure we'll revisit this as we go onwards. Yeah, I mean, that was the same thought that I had as I, I started saying that out loud. Yeah. So I'm, 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 because, I'm there with you. Because they did say that this was a continued conversation from earlier. It could have been a coded conversation, but I feel like it's a bit of a strange one to suddenly pull up out of nowhere. Yeah. But that's fair enough. I think this has been really interesting listening to you, like figure out what's going on with the Frelly house mm. as this whole plot sinks into the sea. I'm honestly looking forward to seeing if you can solve this mystery down to your usual level of detail. I'm very excited. And I am, of course, really, really happy to hopefully uh, thwart I you. Get it. I, I get it. I don't even know if that word works that well in this context, but to thwart you in finding this mysterious clue that Catchball calls out as unfair and something that he <laughs> didn't have access to that somebody else might uh -oh. have access to. So we'll see if you can pick that one next week on the show. We are going to be reading from chapter 13 all the way up to chapter 28, Joy and Guilt. And I hope you'll enjoy if there's any more murder in this book and we'll see how we go. It'll be great. I'm looking forward to it. And we can decorate some Christmas trees with the family. Oh no. Dude, this is the best part of the book. I'm terrified. There are so many Christmas trees. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. We will be back with chapters 13 to 28 of Silent Night, a Hercule Poirot mystery by Sophie Hanna. Looking forward to seeing you then. You're listening to 2SCR 107.3. Catch you around. There's five Christmas trees. 